Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Caleb. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I'm going to pray for our time together. Uh, we are continuing in the book or the letter um, that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, the first letter. We're in chapter 14 now, uh, on, on the home stretch to completing it finally. We've gone through several uh, controversial passages, and, and this will be uh, no different. Father, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, I ask you uh, that you would help us to understand, that you would, um, that you would help to reveal yourself in, in deeper ways uh, to us, convict us of sin, and um, renew us by your grace. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Portakal Suyu. Does anyone know what that means? Neither did I. I was visiting Istanbul, uh, Turkey, several years ago, and one morning I decided to go through uh, for a walk through the city. And I was hungry and wanted some food, but nothing that I saw in terms of a place to eat stood out to me until I saw a familiar sight, so a set of big uh, golden yellow arches. And it was a McDonald's right there in, in Istanbul, Turkey. And I thought, well, uh, that's familiar. And, and on this same trip, I had just gone to India. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool to see how McDonald's in Turkey differs from that in the United States. And in India, they had, uh, instead of a Big Mac, they had a Maharaja Mac. And it was, it was, uh, it was not beef, um, uh, as those, you know, India, that's, that's not a big thing. In, or Actually, cows are a big thing, but not beef in, in India. And so it was like this uh, chicken patty, you know, in the form of a Big Mac, but with all these Indian spices. And so uh, as I'm in Turkey, I thought, well, maybe I'll see something like a, a Euro-style Egg McMuffin, you know. Because um, uh, they don't have Euros, but they have a sandwich, which is very much like a Euro. It's the Donair. It actually precedes Euros. And so, um, but there's a bit of uh, disappointment in Turkish culture that Greek cuisine has been sort of put out at the forefront when Turkish cuisine is actually older and more in-depth. Anyhow, I'm at this McDonald's, and I walk in, and though the outside looks familiar, as soon as I start to open my ears, the, the, the sounds are not familiar. So the people are talking in Turkish, the people look Turkish, the people working at the counters are Turkish. The only thing English I could hear was Cisco thong song play, blaring from the speakers. I was like, oh, that sounds familiar, but that's like from the 1990s. So I go up, and I want to order some food. I said, you know, I, I can't read what the menu is saying, but I at least can see the pictures, and I see something that looks like a sausage McMuffin, presumably not pork, being that it's a mostly Muslim country. I thought, well, okay, I can't speak the language, but I can point at something. And so I pointed at the meal that was the sausage McMuffin with a hash brown and coffee. The only problem was I wasn't feeling like coffee. I really wanted orange juice. 
And so I needed to do a substitution. And so I said, well, you know, this shouldn't be a problem because everyone knows what orange juice is, right? Well, apparently not Turkish people. At least not the English word orange juice. So I said to the lady who was taking my order, instead of coffee, I would like some orange juice, please. She looked at me with this blank stare. She had no idea what I was saying. And so like any good American, what I said was exactly the same thing, only more slowly and loudly. (laughs) Instead of coffee, I would like orange juice, please. That still didn't work. She was still confused. and, And finally, I said one more time, orange juice? She had enough with me. She walked off. She brought back what looked like her manager. And the manager said in a heavy Turkish accent, uh, what do you want? I said, uh, can I have some orange juice instead of coffee? And he looks at me, he pauses for a moment, and then he smiles. And he says this, jackpot. And so he goes off and he, he brings back a carton of Minute made orange juice. And he points at it, he smiles, and I'm like, yeah, that's what I want. In, in Turkish, it's called portakal suyu. Portakal suyu. I won't forget that. It's the only Turkish word I know. Words matter. And that's the, the title of this message this morning. Words matter. Why? Because, because understanding matters. And understanding matters because that has a direct impact on life. Right? The words that I used mattered. And, and if we hadn't been able to connect to an understanding, that morning I would have had coffee instead of orange juice. As we continue in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we're going to see Paul start to zero in on the particular issue that the Corinthians are dealing with. And it has to do with regards to uh, spiritual gifts and how they're being used, in particular words. Now, just a little bit of recap, Paul started off his letter by identifying sort of the main problem with the church, and that was divisiveness. So that was in, in chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, he says, he argue, I don't want you to be divisive. And he says, I've, I've got it reported of you that some people say I follow Paul, some people say I follow Apollos, some people say I follow Cephas, and some people say I follow Christ. So there's this, um, these factions that are being created based on these labels that people want to associate themselves with. People do that today. Oh, I'm a Baptist, I'm a Presbyterian, I am a... Latter-day Saint Mormon, right? People put these labels to try to identify themselves as a group that has a superior knowledge or superior belief system. So Paul's saying this, there's this divisiveness that is occurring. And this divisive spirit has, has manifested itself in several ways that Paul specifically addresses starting in chapter 12. It, it's, he turns to the topic of spiritual gifts. And as he discusses spiritual gifts, he says, there are lots of different gifts. Not just one, not just two, but a plethora of gifts. 
And all of these gifts are given by the same Spirit. One Spirit, many gifts. Then he gives us this really great metaphor of the body. There's one body and many members. Just as we have one body and many members of that body, it's still one. And so he's imploring with them that that their gifts as individual members are meant for the unity of the whole body. They're meant for the common good of the whole body. And he's arguing this, and he, and he says even the, the less honorable gifts, this is chapter 12, verse 25, the less honorable gifts are given greater honor so that there would be no division in the body. And so what Paul is doing is setting up this foundation to help them understand and see the ways in which they are misusing spiritual gifts. They're, they're taking that same attitude of divisiveness and applying it to their use of spiritual gifts. And now, in chapter 14, Paul's going to zero in on the spiritual gift, the primary spiritual gift that they're misusing. In order to summarize Paul's argument, I'm going to look at a set of three comparisons. The first comparison is tongues versus prophecy. The third comparison is alienation versus understanding. And the second comparison is exclusion versus inclusion. Three comparisons. Let me start in verse 1. It'll be a little bit of a recap. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Uh, This is the completion of Paul's argument from the previous chapter, that in understanding spiritual gifts, love is preeminent. Love is the, the compass that helps to direct our use of spiritual gifts. Without love, every spiritual gift is essentially meaningless. That was what Paul was arguing in chapter 13. You can speak in tongues, you can prophesy, you can have faith that moves mountains, you can do all of that, but if you don't have love, they're all nothing. And so Paul says, Paul doesn't say don't desire spiritual gifts. He doesn't say don't pursue spiritual gifts. He says pursue love first and then desire spiritual gifts in the context of love because love has with it this idea of caring for other people desiring to see people built up and encouraged. And so it's with that, that's the, that's the paradigm, that's the framework out of which we are to desire and use spiritual gifts. And so with that foundation, I want to look at a comparison of tongues and prophecy because that's what uh, Paul is doing here. So now when we look at tongues and prophecy, I think one of the things we need to do is understand what is tongues and prophecy. So I want to look at that from uh, Scripture. Tongue, the word that's translated tongue is in the Greek is glossa. And it, and it literally means language. That's what it means, language. And in the context of what Paul is describing, it means um, it's describing a language that is foreign to both the speaker and the audience. So it's a foreign language both to the speaker and to the audience. He says in verse 2, for the person who speaks in another tongue, a.k.a. language, is not speaking to people but to God since no one understands him. He speaks mysteries in the Spirit. Now there's a debate 
about whether tongues is an earthly language or a heavenly language. And I'm not going to address that debate because it's not important to the point that Paul's making. Whether it is a earthly language or it is a heavenly language, in both cases, it's an unknown language to the speaker and to the hearer. So that's his point. So whatever tongues is, whatever you believe it is, whether it is an earthly language or a heavenly language, in the context of the person speaking it and in the immediate hearers, it is unknown. There's no understanding. And therefore, as Paul says, it is mysteries in the Spirit. That's his main point in terms of what the function of tongues is right here. Now, the next question with regards to tongue is what is their use? What is the use of tongues? And here again, there is another debate. Some say that tongues is only used for evangelistic purposes, whereas others say that tongues is used for both evangelistic purposes and prayer language. Okay? The evangelistic purposes, we see probably the best example in the book of Acts chapter 2 where the early followers of Jesus are, they're praying and they're waiting for the Lord according to what the Lord directed them. They said, the Lord said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And, and as they're praying, the Holy Spirit does that and they start speaking in other languages. And this happens at the festival of Pentecost, which was a festival that attracted many different cultures and nations from around the region into, this, into Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of Pentecost. And the miracle of what happened is as they were speaking in other languages, these people who spoke different languages were hearing the Jews at the time proclaim the magnificent acts of God in their own language. And what it did, it served to confirm that, hey, there is something supernatural happening so that immediately after Peter begins to preach the good news of Jesus Christ, and their ears are open to listening because they heard their own languages being spoken to them. And so this is a, a perfect example of, of an evangelistic use of Acts. It's being used to, to communicate with understanding in this case because God did something to interpret those or to, to help them to speak in a language they understood. So this was an evangelistic use of Acts. However, it seems in chapter 14 that there may be a second use of tongues. That might be closer to what we would call a prayer language. And I'm going to show you the verses that seem to show me this. Verse 2, chapter 14. For the person who speaks in another tongue is not speaking to people, but to God. Verse 14, for if I pray in another tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Verse 15, what then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing praise with the spirit, and I will also sing praise with my understanding. So it seems to me that Paul has in mind a type of use of tongues, of, of other languages that are directed towards God in the form of prayer or of praise or of giving thanks. And that's where the idea of tongues as a prayer language comes from. It comes from 
this passage primarily. Now, the difference between the evangelistic use of tongues and the prayer use of tongues is this. It's interpretation. It's understanding. Where there is understanding, it can be used evangelistically. Where there is not, it has no use for other people. And that's the point that Paul is making. So a short definition of the gift of tongues is an unknown language spoken to God as prayer or praise or spoken to people for their good when the gift of tongues is accompanied by interpretation. Now let's move on to prophecy. We're still in we're still defining things here. Prophecy. What is it? They're words inspired or impressed by God in a language of understanding that either foretells or foretells. They're words of understanding from God that either foretell or foretell. I'm going to explain that. I'll start with the idea of foretelling. This is predictive. This is about future. We see an example in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 28. This is an example of prophecy as foretelling. We read, In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. Prophecy as as foretelling is predictive. Prophecy, therefore, sometimes predicts a a future event that will happen before it actually happens. The question is, does this happen today? Clearly, it happened in Scripture. It happened in the Old Testament, happens in the New Testament, during Jesus' time, happens after Jesus dies, at least um, with the apostles and the early followers of Jesus. Does it still happen today? I'll tell you a quick story. It's probably 14, let's see, 13 years ago. I just started uh, my career as a technology consultant. And I was on this project in a city of San Ramon. It's in the Bay Area, working at AT&T. And, and a bunch of young people uh, from various parts of the country were flown in to write test cases, which basically means opening an Excel sheet and copy-pasting a bunch of stuff for eight hours a day, every day, for three months straight. Not fun, but I was entry-level, and, and that's what you have to do. Two weeks in... I met a coworker named Luis, and up until that first time I met him, I uh, was on this project, and up until that point, I think the, at most, they may have known that I was a Christian and attended church. That's about it. And one day, two weeks in, Luis taps me on the shoulder, and he, and he asked me this. He said, Caleb, when are you going to become a pastor? And I, and I was taken aback by that. And, and it could be, one, it, it stuck out to me because I actually felt like God was leading me into pastoral ministry at that point. I was kind of fighting and wrestling with it. Because I've heard, I, I had several people sort of 
prod me in that direction based on how they had seen me in teaching and relating with the word and, and all of that and, and, and felt like God was calling me that way, but I wasn't sure and, and in some ways I was still fighting it. So it struck me when he said that. And it struck me again because he didn't know me. <laughs> he didn't know what I was thinking about that. All he knew was I went to church. And so my response to Luis was, Luis, just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean I'm going to become a pastor. Like, I was like, like, that's not a logical conclusion from being a Christian. And he, uh, he smiled and he nodded at me and said, okay. And uh, three months later, as our project was concluding, I went to Luis and I said, Luis, uh, remember when you asked me when I was going to become a pastor? I said, you know... He said, yeah, I remember. And I said, uh, I actually think like God has called me to become a pastor. And I said, how, how did you guess that? And he told me, I didn't guess, I knew. And, and that has stuck with me ever since. Now, whether to call that a gift of prophecy or not, I'm not sure. All I know is I believe with all the bottom of my heart that God used that. That that was something that Luis couldn't have known. And yet God gave him a word, and he used it to encourage me, to strengthen me in what God was calling me to do. And it came true. <laughs> As I look back now, in that sense, from the strictest definition of the word, it's something that he said that came true. For me, it was a prophecy. Now, I know there's lots of room for disagreement around there. I'm just sharing with you a personal experience and how I relate to the text and how I relate to what I've seen God do in my life. That's prophecy as foretelling. But there's a second function of prophecy called forthtelling that's equally as important. What do I mean by forthtelling? You see an example in uh, how Paul describes what happens in, at the end of this uh, passage, in verse 24 and 25, uh, verse 24, Paul writes, For, uh, But if all are prophesying and some unbeliever or outsider comes in, he is convicted by all and is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart will be revealed, and as a result, he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming, God is really among you. Forthtelling is about revealing the truth of a situation or the, the truth of someone's heart in, uh, in respect and in regard to how God views it. So in this case, Paul is saying the congregation is prophesying, an outsider comes in, and they hear that what is being spoken of like resonates with their heart at a deep level that they see it as true, and it's very clearly something that came from God. It's bringing out the truth of a matter in such a way that sometimes the effect is conviction and people get gripped by what that truth is. It causes people to react. Some say that, that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had a prophetic voice. Why? Not because he was predicting the future, 
but because he was revealing the truth of injustice and segregation. He was revealing the truth of injustice in this idea of separate but equal. He was revealing the truth of injustice in the hearts of people that wanted to keep certain people down. And in that sense, Dr. Martin Luther King wasn't predicting the future, but in his prophetic voice was, in a very real sense, making the future. Prophecy as foretelling is bringing forth or, or calling into vision what is actually true underneath the surface sometimes. Bringing it to the light in light of what God sees so that we can respond in repentance and we can respond in belief of what God is doing. Prophecy is foretelling, predictive, or sorry, prophecy can both be both foretelling and foretelling, both indicative and predictive, both stating what is true about now and stating what is true or what will be true in the future as it relates to God's view of things. Now, what's the purpose of the gift of prophecy? Paul writes in verse 3, On the other hand, the person who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and consolation. Strengthening, encouragement, and consolation. This is the use of prophecy. This is what it is for. In verse 4, Paul says that prophecy builds up the church. This is a gift. These are words with understanding that are meant to strengthen encourage and console the church and so with these working definitions in mind Paul makes a comparison between tongues and prophecy and we see that comparison in verse 5 I wish all of you spoke in other tongues but even more that you prophesied the person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may be built up. Prophecy is greater than tongues with one exception, interpretation. Why is that? Because prophecy brings understanding while tongues does not. It's a pretty simple argument that he's making. Tongues is not necessarily a bad thing. Paul says that tongues does build up individuals, but he says, and he says that he wishes all people spoke in tongues, and yet despite those good things, he wished even more that they would prophesy. Why? Because prophecy brings understanding that benefits not just the speaker, but it benefits those around them, whereas tongues without interpretation does not benefit anyone around them. And so what Paul is doing, this, this contrast between tongues and prophecy is really being set up as a contrast between understanding on the one hand and lack of understanding on the other. And lack of understanding produces alienation, as we'll see as we go forward. And so that brings me to the second comparison. It's not only tongues versus prophecy, it's alienation versus understanding. 
In verses 6 through 12, Paul gives several reasons why speaking in tongues does not benefit other people. But the example that I want to focus on comes from verses 10 through 11. He says this, There are doubtless many different kinds of languages in the world, and none none without meaning. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. This is what happened to me in Turkey. I was quite literally a foreigner to the country. But even as I was surrounded by what I thought was a familiar place with the sights and colors and smells that felt very familiar to me, as soon as what what highlighted the fact that I was a foreigner was as soon as I started talking. And as soon as I started hearing other people talk back to me, I realized I'm not from this place. I can't even understand what's being said. And it, it was only because of a manager who knew both languages who was able to bridge the gap and start to make me feel like, okay, well, maybe I can actually order some. Now, you don't have to go to a different country to feel like a foreigner. You can feel alienated in your own hometown. You can feel alienation in your church. My wife, uh, Stephanie, gave me some feedback a few weeks ago. She said, Caleb, you know, I think you used too many illustrations about sports. And, and, I, and I thought about it for a while, and I thought, you know what, she's right. And, and as, much, as much as I can see so many life analogies between sports and, and life, it, and, and how much meaning they, they bring to me, I have to recognize that not everyone is into sports as much as I am. And if all I did was just give sports analogy after sports analogy after sports analogy, that could be alienating to a lot of people who really don't get sports. Alienation doesn't have to happen just because you're in another country. It can happen right here at home with even English language that we're using if we start to talk in a way that begins to separate. What do I mean? I used to work in the software engineering industry. I worked with software engineers. Uh, I am not a software engineer. And so, and yet I have to work very closely with them. And there were oftentimes conversations I would get into and and as they start to get into the technical details, it started to go over my head. And I, I, I'm pretty sure they were speaking English. And yet, when it started to get into the nitty-gritty details of subroutines and variables and whatnot, like I came and name all the stuff, it made me feel alienated. It made me feel foreign to the conversation. How many of you have been in a conversation with a group of people and, and you're chatting and having a good time, but then the, the topic of conversation goes to a place that you have no knowledge or no interest about? Like, what do you do in that situation? I know me, I, I kind of nod, smile while I'm looking for the exit. 
people can be made to feel alienated by the words that we use. It doesn't even have to be a different language. Words matter. Understanding matters. And what Paul is getting at is tongues without interpretation is basically just causing division because no one else benefits from it where there's no understanding. I think Paul is seeing that this is something that the Corinthian church is struggling with. On the other side of alienation is understanding, and Paul emphasizes the value of understanding. In verses 13 through 19, Paul sums it up in verse 19 by saying that understanding is so important that he would rather say five words with understanding than 10,000 words with no understanding. Which is pretty incredible because it's interesting to me because sometimes I think there's value in quantity. I don't know if you've ever been praying and you pause in the middle of prayer. I've done this. And I thought to myself, have I said enough words? The person who prayed before me They've just prayed this long, beautiful prayer, and I'm halfway through and stumbling. I need to add some more words to make it a better prayer. As if quantity is what really counted. What happens when I just try to add words is I ramble. And rambling is just another way of saying multiplying words with no real point in saying it other than just to say it. When we do that, we don't bring clarity. We add to confusion. Understanding is about clarity of meaning. And meaning is conveyed through a lot of things, but primarily through words. So words matter because they carry with them meaning that if we intend for those words to be helpful, we should want for people to understand what we're saying. Paul writes, For if I pray in another tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. It doesn't mean that tongues is bad. He says ideally that he would pray both with the spirit and with understanding. But that's why he argues that if you pray in a tongue, he says you should pray also that you interpret. So alienation versus understanding is another comparison that we see and it's not just about that it's what that leads to and that's the third comparison exclusion versus inclusion and I'm going to use uh, verses 20 through 25 as the primary support verses for this comparison I'm going to reread verses 20 through 25 Brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your thinking, but be infants in regard to evil and adult in your thinking. It is written in the law, I will speak to this people by people of other tongues and by the lips of foreigners, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Speaking in other tongues then is intended as a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers while prophecy is not for unbelievers but for believers. If therefore the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in other tongues 
and people who are outsiders or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all are prophesying and some unbeliever or outsider comes in, he is convicted by all and is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart will be revealed, and as a result, he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming God is really among you. Here's the crux of the problem with the Corinthians. They've taken a good thing, the gift of tongues, and they have started to use it to exclude others. What do I mean? Let me give you an illustration. We'll see if this makes sense. It is not a sports illustration. Let's say I prepare a steak for myself at home. I love steak. And it is a well-marbled, juicy ribeye steak. And I sear it on the stovetop, finish it in the oven to a perfect medium. Okay? And I enjoy it at home. Like that's, a, that's, a, that's something that's good. That's something that maybe many of you would like to do yourselves. Now, what if I take that same steak, prepared the same way, and I take that to the shelter here, my single steak, and eat it in front of everyone. And I do that every night. How does that make you feel about that steak and what I'm doing? I'm hoping that it rubs you the wrong way. And, and, and the reason why is because there's, there's something about that picture that says that's kind of selfish or that's kind of showy or why didn't you bring enough for everyone like why, why do you have to why do you have to show off your gift in that way it's almost as if I'm saying I am gifted to eat the steak but no one else around me is it's not that eating a steak is a bad thing but when I bring my gift in the presence of others and hoard it for myself what am I saying up to the other people? That's the point that Paul's making, that, that tongues is a gift. It's not, it's not bad, but when you take that gift and you show it off and there's no interpretation, you're just eating a steak by yourself in front of people. There's no edification of the people around you unless you share it with other people. That's his point. And so in your lifting up your own personal gift, you begin to exclude those around you. And Paul, Paul is definitely talking about exclusion. The, the, the passage that he referenced, he quotes from the Old Testament. He says, I will speak, it's written in the law, I will speak to this people by people of other tongues, by the lips of foreigners, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. This is a picture of judgment. That the point in using tongues so that people do not understand is actually a form of judgment by God. So when he says tongues are, uh, <clears throat> when he says tongues is intended as a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, it's for unbelievers in the sense that it is judgment. That's his point. Which is why he says if if you. If everyone is speaking in tongues with no interpretation and an unbeliever or an outsider comes in, like, will they not think you're out of your minds? 
this is not just happening in Corinth. This actually happens today in some churches where churches who, are, who believe they're practicing the gift of tongues are clearly not doing so in a biblical way and they come into this room where everyone is just speaking all sorts of things at the same time. It's chaotic. It's weird, honestly, to an outsider. That's what Paul is saying. And they're not turned on to Christ. They're turned away from Christ. That's judgment. That's you sitting, eating your steak by yourself, thinking you're doing a good thing, and you've just alienated those around you. You've you've excluded them. What Paul is saying, and it's really interesting here, some people argue that, that the church is just for the saints, like the gathering on Sunday is just a Christian thing. And Paul clearly has other ideas. He says... He's open. He says, when, when outsiders or unbelievers come into your midst, he's expecting that that will happen. This is a public gathering that he's talking about. He's not talking about a closed, tight-knit sort of Christian fellowship group. Not that those are wrong to have, but he's saying when you gather as the saints publicly, expect that outsiders and unbelievers will come in. And if they're coming in then you should be using words that would actually be used to build up, to edify, to convict, and draw people to God, not push them away from God. And so the contrast from exclusion is to inclusion. And by inclusion, I mean biblical inclusion. What I mean by that, he's saying everyone should hear the good news of Jesus Christ, that no one should be excluded from hearing the good news of Christ. And we can use our spiritual gifts in such a way that can be, become exclusive. We can use words in such a way that become exclusive, not just foreign languages. I think I've seen like sports analogies or, or Christianese. You know what Christianese is? Like using lots of high language Glory and holiness and penal substitution. Right? A lot of people don't know what those words are. And so if all of our teaching and all of our preaching just sounds very high and, and Christianese, that itself can be a barrier towards people knowing who God is. And I think I'm guilty of this myself. Like I, I love words and I love to study. And sometimes I I, I I don't stop to think, do people actually understand what I'm saying? If I just sit here and say high words just to prove that I know what I'm talking about, I haven't done the gospel justice because if you don't understand it, I might as well be just speaking into the air. It means nothing. And the point of what Paul is getting at, this understanding, it's not understanding for understanding's sake. It is understanding something very specific, something very true. It's a message that that Paul wants to see communicated and see people understand so that we get this picture at the end of this passage of people, unbelievers, outsiders who come into the midst of the people of God. They hear people prophesying. And notice this. It doesn't say they hear the preacher speaking. It doesn't say they heard the music. It says, in verse 24, if all are prophesying, all, it says in verse 24, he is convicted by all and he's called to account by all. There's a corporate use of the gifts that's happening. 
if, if, if the gathering is all about the preacher preaching the gospel and people coming to hear that, we've missed, we've missed the beauty of what Paul wants to see in the church. Paul wants to see a church where all the members are exercising in the fullness of their gifts so that I imagine a place, Harambe, being a place where an outsider or an unbeliever comes in. They hear preaching that's convicting. They hear music that's uplifting to God. They hear a testimony that's shared. They hear a prayer that's shared. They hear someone come up and bold enough to ask them how they're doing and pray for them. All these gifts working together so that they can say, I was convicted by all. And I met God in this place. And that they fall down and worship God because, not because they heard Christianese, but because they heard something they understood about the truth of what God did to save people. That God comes and he loves us through Jesus. Where we're at, with all our baggage, with all our mistakes, with all our pain, with all our suffering, with all our confusion, that God still pursues us. That's the message that God wants everyone to hear. It's totally inclusive for everyone to hear that message because that's the only message that will cause people to fall down on their face and worship Him. And so I I pray that we as Harambe Church would be a place that's warm and welcoming, that we would be a place that communicates God's gospel truth clearly, not just me, but all of us in all the giftings that we've been gifted with. Maybe it's giving someone a scripture, the right scripture at the right time. Maybe it's being bold enough to just ask someone, how are you really doing? Can I take you out to lunch? Maybe it's praying for someone who needs prayer. Maybe it is like my coworker Luis. Maybe you really feel like God's got a word for someone. Being bold enough to speak it. Have others confirm it. Whatever it is, I hope that we become a people that is empowered by the Spirit to love others well, to want to see others experience the same good news that has transformed our lives. I'm going to pray for us and ask that God would help this word to sink into our hearts. Father, um, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you pursue us, that you've saved us through your son, that you've given us this good news. Lord, uh, I pray for wisdom as to the ways in which we as a body struggle with communicating your good news clearly. I pray that you would forgive us where we have failed to do that. Forgive us for, for not pursuing love first. Forgive us for not desiring spiritual gifts, for being apathetic towards them. I pray, Lord, that you would give us all a vision of, of your church that 
looks like the church that Paul envisioned. That looks like all of us being built up in love, being saturated with your word and your truth, filled with your spirit, emboldened to share that news with those around us and with those that we go out in our daily lives to meet. Father, I thank you for your word and and believe, Lord, that you are doing a work in us, um, each individually and and as a body. And pray, Lord, that, uh, that you would bless that work in our lives. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.